Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon with a special guest today. My guest started his sales career at Pentaho and after a few years moved to Cloudera, where he built out the inside sales team, then moved to the enterprise sales group before moving into multiple sales leadership roles. After Cloudera, Dennis went to a startup company named Procore, where he became the EVP of sales, growing the sales force from 30 people in 2014 to over 275 people in 2018. And at the same time, increasing revenues from 10 million to 100 million. In 2018, Dennis Leandres took the chief revenue officer role where Dennis was a catalyst for the company's IPO in May of 2021. The IPO raised $635 million and the company was valued at nearly $11 billion. Today, the company has well over 10,000 customers and 1.8 million users of the product. Welcome, Dennis. Hey, man, how are you? I'm phenomenal. I'm uh, doing really well and honored to get to be here. I'm a big time listener of the show. So it's uh, I'm a little starstruck getting to be on it myself. <laughs> oh, you'll do fine. That's a hell of a ride you had. So we want to talk about that a little bit. So maybe you just start by quickly giving the audience a little idea of what Procore does. Sure. So Procore is a leading platform for construction management. So, you know, we help people build stuff. Um, and those buildings really, really matter, right? These are the hospitals, the schools, the roads, airports like LaGuardia that underpin everything else we do uh, in society. Um, and the company has, I think, a really important uh, mission of connecting everyone on this one global platform. Um, and ultimately, it's a solution that really enables people to build on time, on budget, safely, and of high quality. Um, and it's, a, it's an absolutely exceptional company. So any type of construction project, whether I'm building like a, like you said, a hospital, high rise building, nuclear power plant, maybe that's that's stretching it. But any of those types of projects, uh, that's what Procore does. And then does it connect like the architects and the subs, subcontractors and everybody that's involved in the in the project? Yeah, it absolutely does. So it's, it's really changing the way people build, you know, and in addition to just digitizing construction and paper processes, it's letting everyone build very collaboratively um, and it's letting build uh, building happen in a way that's very, very well integrated into what all the projects, the blueprints and the specs are. Interesting. You guys are doing really well. Hey, let's discuss some of the different roles you've had as you've climbed up sales leadership and some of the lessons that you've learned. So why don't we start by you telling us the first leadership role you had and what you had to learn? Yeah. So the first leadership role, I actually started my career in mergers and acquisitions. Um, and so that was essentially, you know, deal making, you know, it was helping to capitalize uh, growth businesses. 
And very early on in that role, I was trying to think through, I'm like, okay, so what are the really hard problems in this business? And what are the things that I could uniquely bring? Um, and it turns out like many companies actually, like the hardest problem for this firm was finding a repeatable way to build business um, and to find business, so deal origination. Um, and so that was actually my first leadership role is I just started cold calling under a managing partner and dialing and dialing and dialing. And uh, very quickly, he was like, hey, we should scale this out. Um, and so we started hiring analysts um, who were really focused on the sales side of the house. Uh, we actually deployed away from Goldmine onto Salesforce CRM. Um, and that was, I think, my sort of first traditional formal sales role. You know, from there, I got really, really passionate about, you know, kind of go where the going is good. Um, I'd say in my career, you know, just exceptionally lucky. Um, and so, you know, in kind of creating that luck, I looked and I was in Silicon Valley and I thought like, gosh, the special thing in Silicon Valley is technology. Um, and so I joined a data analytics and data integration uh, company, Pentaho, open source. Um, and I went into just a kind of quota carrying capacity there. Um, and I spent a lot of laps really just trying to learn the fundamentals, right? And I know you talk a lot about this, but I just think it can't be stated enough how important the fundamentals are. And frankly, how hard it is to realize a level of mastery in those fundamentals. Um, and so I spent a lot of time at Pentaho just going through those laps, doing that journey, drilling, drilling, drilling to what I thought were the core things that let someone hit their number, forecast accurately, have great customer outcomes, and have great relationships with kind of their partner functions, your sales engineer, your marketer, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and then I joined a big data company. I sort of got bit well, by before the- we go there, let's talk about some of those core things, those core fundamentals, as you talked about, what are some of those core fundamentals? I think prospecting is one of them. And I think, how do you get really, really great at that? And yeah. to me, it was about being very methodical. Like, do I have the right accounts to go after? Right. And at that world, it's, it's, it's great because as you get more senior, it's kind of, you know, well, you could go lots of markets, you could go lots of different segments, lots of different stakeholders, but there's a, a simplicity and a beauty and like, okay, well, these are my assigned accounts. And so for me, you know, in prospecting, it was like, how do I force rank these accounts so I can focus my efforts on the ones that are most likely to yield? It's like, okay, now I know this account, what's my use case? Like, what's my solution, right? And how do I have a message that's really, really compelling and really good? And again, it seems simple, you know, right. to say that, but yeah. then the actual practice of like, you know, that message didn't land that great. Yes. What am I going to do differently? Right? right. So how did you, how did you get, you know, keep like, if I remember when I was first, you know, prospecting like hell, I had to keep changing my message and refining my message and changing it again and again and again. Um, and not that all you wanted to do is present when you're doing, you know, pipeline generation or prospecting but you needed something catchy to kind of get the customer to say, ah, okay, now I'm going to listen. And then you get the opportunity to maybe ask some questions. How did you, how many times did you have to go through this? And did you find a strategy that told you like, now I think I really refined my message? Yeah. I think I found a strategy of failure leads you to success, you know, and just being really intellectually honest with yourself on like, did that land? Did it land as well as it could have? And I did start to kind of try to take a first principle mindset to it and be like, okay, well, I'm not sure what a great message is, but I know what a bad one is. So like, how do I make sure mine's not bad? Is my message boilerplate? Does it sound like a robot's delivering it? Um, is it differentiated? Does that differentiation really resonate with this human? 
with this human is not just their role, but who they actually are as a person. And so for me, it was just like a lot of practice. And, you know, I think I was probably annoying about it. You know, I'd wake up for the day and, you know, I'd kind of be in the, you know, bathroom getting ready and be like, okay, I'm practicing my pitch. I'm practicing my pitch. And I know like, this is the one thing I hope I'm going to land and test today. And if that lands and cool, I'll keep it and I'll keep building on it. And I think it was just practice, 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 practice. Um, and just being really honest with yourself. Like, and don't you find that also that it's really the best messaging is also the simplest messaging. It's not trying to make the messaging more complex is what I, what I found. Absolutely. Well, I think you look, you say this on a lot of the podcasts, right? I think you want to tailor your message to the audience. And so, you know, if you're talking to someone low level and maybe that's some way to build a groundswell or get intelligence or whatever your account strategy is there, then yeah, I think you can talk more feature function, more jargon, but certainly as you get more and more senior and as you demonstrate more and more of a mastery of the subject, simplicity is absolutely essential. Right. And you know it when someone's like, what did you just say? <laughs> right. right? Um, I used to say, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, who probably doesn't know the first thing about technology, then you really aren't simplifying it. Yeah. So, hey, yeah. what about what about some, you know, talked a little bit about prospecting. That's one of the core fundamentals. What other core fundamentals did you have to learn, you know, when you were a rep and then into the first line manager job? You know, I think business fundamentals, um, and I took a lot of time both in mergers and acquisitions and at Pentaho, um, helped me a lot. And I, so I think being able to understand, like, what does gross margin mean? How do you read a financial statement or a 10K? Mm, like, how do you power? Yeah, right? Um, yeah. And that stuff, I think, really enabled me to be much more relevant to the most important problems in the organization. Um, and so that was another one was just like a strong command of, you know, business. Um, account planning and account research, right? Again, I know these things sound kind of like, oh, is this like the crap that the sales leader makes me do? Um, but these were the things I did as a rep that really helped me be successful. And the number of times that I was like, okay, well, I somehow got a meeting on campus. And oh, shoot, you know, I did my org chart and I know who that human is. And I even know about their personal interests. I know what things they're talking about in the web. And I just got a plate appearance with, you know, an SVP. And how do I really leverage it? And so account planning um, was another really big one. Um, I found that, you know, getting people to make a decision was really hard, right? And so you look at so many of these closed loss reports and it's like, well, number one reason, you know, you didn't win a deal was no decision. And so for me, I found that there was real urgent, real like skill in building urgency, right? And it was a lot more on quantifying the cost of, doing nothing and quantifying what happens if you don't go with this solution and why we're uniquely valuable. Um, and I also truthfully, you know, especially as I made the transition from rep to first line manager, um, I started to realize like everything is people and it's psychology. And, you know, my own learning journey, um, you know, I felt like organizational behavior and some of those, you know, traditional business disciplines, they're good. But I found that the like true social psychology, you know, the study of humans, the study of how they interact served me exceptionally well. And so I started right. to take that and apply it with some of the work you put on, like, who are my influencers and who are my blockers? And what are the things that get an influencer to want to really be a champion for me? And how can I make sure that they're a champion? What are the things in a group dynamic that can neutralize, you know, someone who's a blocker? 
um, without bruising their ego and their feelings, especially if they were the ones who bought the legacy solution. Um, right. And so to your thread on like, you know, what did I learn as a rep? I think it was, I was like, how do I find business? How do I close business? How do I forecast it well? How do I take each stage, stage of the sales cycle and land it really well? As I started to think more about like leadership and what that meant, it really started to get more clear. It's like, well, this is just the people thing. And truthfully, it's a similar body of work, right? You want to solve hard problems inside a company. You want to solve hard problems in your customer environment. And so, so much of that is actually overlapping that I started to just study a lot on like change and how do you lead people? How do you inspire people? And so does that answer your question on kind of? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like you talked about human psychology. I think that that's something that uh, I've always you know thought a lot about. And then also for me, what worked a lot was intuition, right? You have to learn whether you're selling to people or you're managing people and all the different scenarios that come up. You have to learn, like you said, human behavior, human psychology, but you also have to put your intuition to work. It can't always just be that you're making decisions only off of data. Yeah. You have to feel like what's really going on here. What are they trying to do? What's, what are they trying to drive? Is there any secondary, you know, factor that's playing into this thing, you know, before you make a decision. And, and through that, I learned also that I didn't have to make decisions right now. So when somebody came into my office and said, Hey, here's the situation. What do you want to do? I'd sometimes I say, I, I don't know. I say, well, what do you mean? You don't know. You got to make a decision. I said, I got to make a decision, but I don't have to make a decision right now. Why? Well, wh when are you going to make a decision? I don't know. It could be on a run. It could be in the shower. I could be driving to work. And then all of a sudden my intuition clicks in and that kind of resonated with what my brain thought. And I thought, okay, that's it. That's the answer. Um, that, that became a big factor for me. Same. What about some skills you had to develop? And, you know, this doesn't have to be the first line manager role. Just think about any of the roles that you had. What are some, when you look back, what are some of the one or two top skills you thought, geez, I really had to learn that. Uh, you know, let me, if I could come back on yeah. one of the skills, because yeah. I think that point you just made there is actually worth amplifying. And it was one I struggled a lot with. So I actually think how you make decisions is a really important skill. And, and I did, I was finding I was constantly off balance, right? So I was either making too much of an emotional decision too quickly when I didn't have to, mm. or I was overanalyzing and it didn't make sense. And so I've come to find in my own journey on like decision-making that one, just asking the question, like, do I have to decide this now? And will I get a better outcome if I decide it now um, was really, really powerful. And two, I found I make my best decisions when I balance emotion and logic and when I'm really, really honest with myself around like, am I just going to make an emotional decision either way? And now I'm just looking for data to justify my emotional decision. And, you know, if I make this decision, like, can I change course? What are the consequences of getting it wrong? Um, and so I just, I think it's worth really amplifying. You say, you know, in our interactions, what I found is you bring a level of simplicity and clarity to the situation. I'm like, John, you just said that. Do you know how hard that was for me and how important of a skill making decisions? Yeah. Right. You could argue like the more senior you get, that's all you're doing, right? Is you're making decisions and arguably you're making decisions right. on markets and people and, you know, deals and those sorts of things. So I, I apologize if I brought us back for a moment, but I, I know it's great. It's great because that's what all these, you know, sales leaders have to do is they have to make decisions. And I think the other thing is you have to check in with yourself when you're making a decision, you know, just like telling people that 
I'm not ready to make a decision yet because it just doesn't feel right. It's like my brain's not resonating with my gut or my intuition. At the same time, it could be like you've worked really hard. You got up at five in the morning, you were working out, you're running all over the place at 7.30 at night and somebody comes in your office and asking you to make a decision and you're tired. You know, maybe I don't have to, do I have to make a decision right now? Because time is the only other element is the decision and there's the time element. So how much time do I have to, to make this decision? And if I check in with myself, maybe I won't make the right decision right now because I'm really tired. And maybe I'm a little, as you said about yourself once in a while, I'm a little off balance. So maybe it could wait till the morning. Oh, and I can phone a friend, get additional perspective info. So I, I totally agree. So to your, your question on, you know, I mean, for me, frontline leadership, the skill that I think was most important to learn um, was training. And was like, how do I make sure that one, I'm investing myself so I can learn and grow because I don't think it's fair to ask that of others and not do it yourself. Um, and I think the most meaningful skill I learned that was a hard one was like, how do I actually train and develop this team? And not through a like stick and like, yes, I think repetition matters. And so you've got to keep hitting the same items. And, you know, I've sort of learned for myself until I can't stand saying it anymore. I haven't said it enough because people still can't repeat it back. They don't understand how to apply it and what it means. And yeah, frontline management. And I think that, you know, sometimes there's a misnomer of like, you get to the executive suite and uh, you know, all the stuff you learned about caring for the team, hiring well, setting culture, figuring out how to win, like that goes away. Now you sit in an office and you do, you know, annual planning cycles and compensation reviews. And the truth is, is like that deep detailed understanding of the most important stuff to win, which I think is just people and making sure that they have what they need to be successful. That doesn't go away. It just gets harder to do at scale. And so to your question on like, what skills a frontline manager did I really have to cultivate? And I could break this down further if you'd like of like, okay, well, when you say train people, like what would you actually do to learn how to train people? But at the kind of meta level, I think it was like, how do I hire really well? How do I train really well? How do I get my guys promoted, guys and gals promoted? Um, And look, I think your first day as a manager is actually the day you let someone go. Um, and I had to learn how to do that. And so those were really the the skills, you know, how do I hire, how do I train, develop, promote, and how do I fire um, that I spent a lot of time on as a frontline manager. So that's interesting, Dennis, you talked about, you really had to learn about recruiting, training and development and, um, and unfortunately, you know, terminating some people. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, the biggest lessons you had to learn in recruiting. Let's, let's pick out each one of these. Well, so I think in recruiting, and again, you know, I was thinking last week in prepping for this podcast, I'm like, gosh, this message is going to be so underwhelming because McMahon has talked so many times about recruiting and recruiting the characteristics and attributes and to the skills you need. And so my own journey, um, and by the way, I should say as a quick detour, I'm so glad this podcast exists, your book exists, because when I was trying to learn the McMahon way at Pentaho, it wasn't as well documented, but it was out there, right? And we had PTC guys at Pentaho, and they were like, look, you got to recruit to attributes and characteristics, right? And let's figure out which ones are really going to be great for the company and be great for you. And hey, there are like things people need to do to be successful in this role, whether it's, you know, build a business case, do account planning. So like, you got to actually vet for those skills. And so my own journey in recruiting, I think, was, was two really big things. It was like, one... How do I keep drilling to that? 
right? So how do I look at the characteristics and attributes? And, you know, there are a handful that I've realized have really carried me through every role. Um, and I'd say they're looking for people that are really hungry. They're looking for people that are humble and curious. Um, and they're looking for folks that are, you know, really smart. Um, and there are others, right? Ownership and, um, but those three, hungry, humble, smart. And then it was like, what are the skills, right? And I was a little less probably than I should have been truthfully in a frontline management hiring reps role around, you know, the technical skill of knowing business intelligence and data integration, data analytics. If I had a do-over, I actually would have indexed a little bit more, but I was indexing very heavy on like, are these people who have either trained themselves or been trained and what is their potential aptitude? And so I think in recruiting, there was, that was one really big thread for me, which was like, how do I hire to the characteristics and the skills? The other, um, which was painful. And, you know, you've said this to me in more than one interaction. Um, look, you own it either way. So when it didn't land, you right. either hired wrong mm-hmm. or you managed wrong. And by the way, you don't get to well, do you couldn't the- train and de- You couldn't train and develop, right? Or you couldn't lead. It's one of those three things. You either can't recruit, you can't train and develop, or you couldn't lead. So which one is it? Because you have to own it. Well, and so that was the second part of my journey in recruiting was, look, I think you learn a lot from failure. And so, you know, for me to get better at recruiting, a lot of it was like, sure, let me understand the success and what did I do there and how do I keep doubling down on that? What were the ingredients in that successful hire? But truthfully, the ones where I was like, gosh, I brought this person aboard and they left a great job somewhere else. And like, I failed them. Like, what specifically? Because I think that where, you know, you can kind of give yourself an out. And I did this in my early days. I was like, well, it was both. You know, I hired wrong and I managed wrong. And like, you know, like these other things, they didn't go as well. I was like, no, no, no. Like, which one was it? And fine, maybe it wasn't 100% of the situation. But if that's the story you're going to tell yourself, Dennis, then wait it. Was it 80% you hired wrong? And you hired because you were an early stage company and this was a big company person. And yes, they knew how to talk the talk in an interview about MedPick and, you know, they seemed hungry, but they just weren't used to a place where comp plans change every, you know, six to 12 months where the CRM is, you know, not quite tuned and it's very agile. So we're constantly changing. And so for me in recruiting, um, there were two things that I was like, I've got to get really, really good at this. One was like, you know, hiring to those attributes and characteristics and the skills and getting really good at doing that. And if you'd like, happy to click through kind of the next level. Like- no, no, no. The only thing I want to say on that is uh, sometimes in these really fast growing companies like you've been in, you might hire right in 2023 and the person stays around in 2025, but 2025, it's a completely different company with completely different demands. And that person just didn't adapt. And then you have to make a change. Um, so that's why a lot of times when you're recruiting and you're looking for characteristics, it's also the person that's coachable, not only coachable, but adaptable. Because if you're going to grow fast, those people are going to have to adapt with the ever-changing environment, changing messaging, changing product, changing competition, changing personas you call on. And if they can't adapt, maybe you hired good in 2023, but by 2025, they're gone because they, they're not changing. That, that's a big one when you're in a really fast growing company. I mean, I think it's so big that it's like, if, you know, in my own reflection on like where, in addition to being lucky, like what are the things I think I've tried to get really good at that have helped me in my career and learning and learning how to learn and learning how to deal with change 
has been one of the most essential skills. And we actually tried to institutionalize this at Procore, where when we were promoting folks, yes, your numbers have to be there. That's table stakes. There's not even a conversation. And of course, we need business need as well. Otherwise, you know, what are we doing here? But we actually started to instrument people's rate of learning. And, you know, we would look back over simplified on a quarterly plan and say, well, hey, here were the things you said were going to make you successful for this role or the next role, depending on where you were kind of positioned in the company. And how well did you learn those things? And how fast are you learning? And I found the folks that like really scale with the company. I mean, they're learning 50, 100 percent. And I, I think it's hard to get to that level of precision with yeah, methods, right. but it's obvious they're learning exceptionally well. And I actually- How is it obvious? Tell, tell me how it was obvious. What were some of your markers to tell you that it was obvious? Look, I think when someone really knows their stuff, they could teach it to someone else. Mm-hmm. And so part of it was like, can you develop other people yeah. on the skill? Right. right. I like that. Um, I think that, you know, what I've come to find is um, sometimes the middle is hard to assess. But the extremities are actually not. So when you're like, gosh, like we talked about learning this thing, whether it was, you know, our company story and pitch and a great customer case study, um, or it was, you know, our own methodology or it was our product, whatever. But like we've talked about this three times now and you still couldn't give me the basics, right? That's obvious. The opposite also became really obvious for us. And we really tried to set a culture of performance and excellence, which was like, I didn't even know you knew you needed to know that. Like you listened to the company all hands. You heard the CEO talk about this thing. You put the extra effort in. And now I'm learning from you and everyone else looks around and they're like, that's the person that we all learn from. And so I think to your question, like one was like, can you teach it to someone else? Yeah. I, um, two was just, you know, look, the 50th percentile can be hard. Like, are they, you know, in quartile three or, you know, the bottom of quartile two? That I found is a little harder to assess, right? But someone shows up and it's clear they have the knowledge. They've done the processes to figure out how to do this thing. And they're just taking the shots, the skill over and over again. Those people usually are pretty obvious and everyone in the company knows who they are, right? Yeah. You know, you can break it down also by each of the different stages and then inside each stage, the different steps of the sales process. And then you can see... (laughs) If you're continuing to teach these people certain steps or parts of the stages, are they, to your point, able to execute? If they are, then you know it's getting better, you know? And then, because each sales force starts to mature and has to take on different aspects at a much higher level in different parts of that sales process, like calling on the economic buyer, you know, those types of things that a lot of people don't do a good job of, you know? watching your team start to execute more and more. And as a CRO, you know, you start to see all these meetings coming in with, you know, economic buyers and you're like, okay, they're, they're really learning this. They're really executing, but you're big on, but I want to come back to training and development. But one of the things you talked about on the flip side of recruiting was that you had to terminate some people. So that's a scary moment for a lot of first time leaders. They've never, They've hired people. Hey, that was pretty cool. I hired five or six sales reps. I hired a couple application engineers. Now, you know, Joe's not getting it done. And I'm going to have to go talk to Joe and let Joe go. Like, what did you have to learn around, you know, termination? 
You know, I've debated, um, and I'd actually love your reaction to this, but I think, and I'm not sure, but I think my own truth today is that firing well is even more important than hiring well. I'm not sure. And truthfully, I'm grateful that I don't have to make that a competing trade-off very often. Um, but, you know, in, in, in letting someone go, I mean, I think for me, I found that how you treat people, especially in the hardest of moments, ultimately becomes who you are as a human. And you have to own it. And so, look, this is a lesson I got from you, right? And I got from people that you have mentored. It's like, it's on you. And so for me, like, I haven't had a lot of struggle with ownership. I think that's one of the things um, that I've been, you know, better at. Um, but I struggled a lot with the emotional aspect of those terminations. And I sure. still do, to be sure. honest, right? Of course, you're a human being. And, you know, you've come to know this person really well. And letting them go, is a, that's a big deal. But a lot of times they, they, they find, they wind up understanding that they don't fit for whatever reason it is, maybe you couldn't uncover it or you did uncover it. And you say, here's some things you're just not getting done. And, you know, you need to go. And then they go and magically they end up in the right spot. And they land on their feet and they're highly successful in that organization that's at a different stage of scaling than your company is. And they do really well. And that's something that's nice to see. Like you actually felt like you were terminating them, which you were, and it was emotional, but then you see that they landed on their feet and you found out, Hey, you know, like I made the right decision at the end of the day for this person, because they really weren't making it, you know, at this company, it might sound harsh, but you know, if anybody's ever played sports, we all get to a certain point. We're not professional athletes. So we all got to a certain point where we started to realize like these people at this level are a lot better than I am. And maybe it's time for me to call it a day. And I'll go land on my feet in some other sport, right? So, well, look, I mean, I think to build on your say, uh, what you're saying, I mean, one thing I've learned is that if I've done all the stuff right leading up to that moment, the termination's a lot easier. And frankly, most of the time they opt out themselves, right? And yes. so, like, pro four, we tried to make it really clear for folks, like, it is all about results, and results aren't just your number; it's how you get there, right? Um, so you can't leave a trail of death and destruction. You've got to commit yourself to learning, mastery, customer success. And in order to get those results, we looked at effort and we looked at learning. And that was on our performance reviews, result, effort, learning. And what we basically said, and you had a strategist, Chuck, I believe, on the podcast, right? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was talking about how he's all about the activities, right? And if you do the activities, you get the outcome. And therefore, you know, you may want to instrument workers to uh to those activities we didn't quite go that far i mean we did say look similar to the company similar to me like we want to be in the boat together you're as good as your number however if you're putting in the work the effort doing the activities and you're learning and your learning is purpose specific on the things we need you to know to progress the stage or to whatever challenges you're having then you should be successful. And so when we were looking at these terminations, it started to get really clear, like, hey, is the effort there? If not, let's turn that dial. Hey, is the learning there? Like, we're here to support you. It doesn't mean we can teach you, right? You've still got to have the hunger. You've still got to have the curiosity. You got to put in the work. And most of the time, folks kind of opted out. And that's a much better situation, right? When people say, hey, you know, this isn't working for me. I found another job. You know, the other thing I learned in terminations um, that was kind of of the emotional ilk um, that was really painful for me when I was like, oh, oh gosh, was I was 
you know, I was really hard on myself. Okay. I messed this up. I brought this person in. They're not successful. That's on me. And then I was spending so much time trying to help them to be successful. And what I didn't realize is like, what is the impact to the rest of my organization when this seller isn't happy, they're not delivering their outcomes. They may not be doing right by the brand, right? Another McMahon mantra, you know, no breath better than bad breath. Right. And so, you know, in that regard, you know, one thing that became really clear for me in terminations that changed my kind of thinking of it was what's like the shadow this person leaves. Yes. Very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah. So that's, you know, let's say you're a first line manager and you're struggling with getting rid of somebody. And let's say if you have five people on a team, you don't think the other four people know that you're supposed to get rid of this person. So every day that goes by that you are not essentially penalizing that person for non-performance, whatever that penalty might be, or, you know, asking that person to leave the company. The other four people are looking at you as a leader saying, what's the matter with him or her? Don't they see what's going on on this team? And then I always think that the longer that you let that go on, then the other four people that might have been performing at a super high level start to realize, well, why do I really have to work at a super high level when this other person is over here? They're not cutting it at all. And my manager's not doing a thing about it. So then the overall performance of the team starts to drop and you may not get it back. So that's why it's really your job as a leader to take care of those situations. And the sooner, the better. Even though that's really difficult, because like you said, you're, you own it. So you struggle with it because of what we talked about before. Did I hire the right person? Did I not train and develop them? Did I not lead them? You know, what's, where did I go wrong? So those are things I learned painfully. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Hopefully, now, the training listeners... and development. Is there anything that you did uniquely that you'd share with the audience about training and developing your people? You said you kept track of like their progress and, and you ranked them all. But is there anything you did that was unique in actually training people or developing people that you would share with the audience? You know, I'm not sure how unique this is. So let me see if this kind of um, hits your question. You know, I think that. Um, one was we tried to make really, really clear what things we wanted folks to be trained on. Um, and we had them in three. And it was sales. It was our product and industry. And it was tech and efficiency. Um, in addition to making that really, really clear, um, we tried to create certifications that were both specific to a certain subject. Hey, we think you know you can champion sell. It doesn't mean you write a book on champion selling. It means that there's actual evidence in your deals right? You could teach it to someone else. And um, we built out an overall set of certification frameworks. We, you know, not the most original, we called it silver, gold, platinum. Mm. Um, and when you got to platinum, you were most eligible for promotion. Sometimes we had enough business to we were going really fast that, you know, gold with a really fast rate of learning. Oh, I like that. Yeah. You would tie a vector to them essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, I, I think, really meaningful. Um, we tried to do a lot on self-service. Um, and kind of having the best reps and the best leaders leading these trainings instead of, you know, someone who, you know, yes, they're enabling, they may be an expert in kind of teaching. 
but they don't command the respect the way that, you know, the top rep does or the top leader. <laughs> right. um, well, that's that, because the, rep, the reps are in the audience and they might have worked at other companies where somebody that's doing the teaching on sales has never actually sold before. So then they're always saying, well, why can't we get somebody in here that actually sells today that can teach us these things? Because then it would resonate more meaningfully with them is what I found. 100%. And so we found that too. Um, you know, the other thing in today's environment is like so much of it is, and look, I'm an open source guy, right? I was Pentaho, I was Cloudera, I love the wisdom of the crowds, I read Wikipedia, like all that open source stuff. Um, and I was like, can't we just make this self-service? Like, why does this have to be gating? If I'm an SDR and I want to know what a, you know, a VP of sales might need to know, which may include that business acumen, you know, rule of 40, gross margin, et cetera. Um, why can't I record that training and make it available to them through some knowledge management system? And so we also kind of made self-service a really big thing. Um, the other thing we did was kind of a coaching and a buddy system. Um, and they sometimes were the same. Your buddy was your coach or your mentor. And other times they were very different. Um, but I don't know if those things are unique because truthfully, I think those things are the fundamentals um, that we just tried to do really well and make our own but they were certainly the things that were extremely impactful. Um, and I could go, if you want, like the next level of detail, every time we got stuck, we kept chunking it out for folks. So when they were like, Dennis, I don't understand, like one more time about this no champion, no deal thing. Um, I, I don't get it. And I don't get how I go from here to you saying I've mastered it. I'm like, okay, you know what? That's a fair point. And we got to result effort learning the same way when people are like, I don't understand how you're measuring and evaluating me. And we started to say, like, you know what? There's three things here. There's, do you have the knowledge? Do you know the processes? And have you just practiced the skill? Because it yes. is a skill. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to practicing the skill. So I think that one of the most powerful things is just basically whiteboard pitching. You know, like, oh, you think you know this product? Or you, okay, here. Here's a marker. Get up to the whiteboard and, you know, mark, draw me a picture. <laughs> right. So talk about now trying to keep it really simple as if you could explain it to your grandmother and get concepts across versus because once people get a concept, then you can give them the layer in the details later versus just diving into the technical details about your product. And I find if people can't actually whiteboard it, then in a lot of ways they can't explain it. But you can also do fun stuff like I've you know broken them into teams and you play Jeopardy or you. You know, you have a hat and you pull out an objection and you have like Dennis read the objection to John and John in front of the whole group has to handle the objection. And then what you find in certain things like that is there's somebody in the group. You think you have the gold standard for handling that objection. And then somebody comes out with something that's remarkable and you just set the new standard. And to your point, then you get that on video. You put it up on the internal website and let everybody see it. I mean, those things are really powerful. Or the recordings. I remember any time that I went to a new company myself and I needed to learn the product, I'd find out who gave the best presentation, whether it was a CTO or the CEO or even a sales rep. I'd record it and go and driving back and forth to work every day. I'd be playing that until those their words essentially were my words. You know, so I think all those things that you talked about are really powerful. Let's yep. talk. You want to switch gears a little bit or do you have something else on training and development? Well, let, let me bounce this off you and, and get your reaction to it. I think that um, 
you know, these things you're talking about, you know, record it, role play, gamify it. These are sort of these core fundamentals. And ultimately, though, it becomes like, is this really a part of your culture? And if it's a part of your culture, the thing you got me thinking on um, that we were doing training wise was we were always training. It wasn't like we were waiting for the QBR or for some monthly training session. It was like, hey, every moment is a training and a teachable moment, by the way, for me, too, as a leader. So it's not like just for the reps, but it was like, are we going to debrief? after this meeting? And are we going to build that into our culture? And then, you know, how are we going to make sure that, you know, if we're doing a 15 minute celebration of the rep who got promoted, that we're talking about what they learned and that they're able to share some of their lessons. And so I think the additional point I'd add on there before we move on is that it's not just the big moments, right, of training, but it's always training, always learning. 100%. Always be learning, right? Be a student of the game. But the other thing is, as a leader, especially when you're in first line or second line, I think a lot of them think that they have to do all the training because they're supposed to be the experts. And what you have to quickly find out is, I don't have to be the expert. There's plenty of experts. What I have to do is be a great facilitator and pull all these people in to help train my group. And through those trainings, whether it's done by somebody else or done by you or some of your salespeople do them, you're still learning. Like <laughs> I learned so much from other people doing the training, you know, and then you just store that. Like you said, as long as you're going to be a student of the game and you think I'm always learning, you're going to make out okay. Ready to switch gears a little? Let's do it. All right. You took over the CRO role. After you guys, or before you guys went public, and now you're managing not just salespeople, you're managing marketing, customer success, business development. What effect did that have on you? Because everybody wants that CRO role until they actually get it. (laughs) I mean, I think there's... Uh, look, you know, maybe for a separate conversation, my own life journey of like, I keep thinking I'm going to get to this. And then there's this, you know, rainbow with a pot of gold and happiness. And I have found that is absolutely not the case, but that's probably its own conversation. You know, look, these lessons that John, you say are like, you know, you learn quickly. I may not have learned them as quickly as I would have liked to. And so, you know, when I looked at like, you know, EVP of sales, um, where, you know, I started at Procore, I did still spend too much time trying to have the answers, mm. right? Okay. And, you know, yeah. some of your guests have talked about this, like necessity is the mother of innovation, right? And so when I got to the CRO role, it became so clear to me, there's no way I can know more about marketing than my head of marketing, right? Also, that shouldn't be my job. If that's my job, I'm doing someone else's job. And then, you know, that what set of, you know, standards and, you know, scale for the company, am I really realizing I'm going to fail, right? Well, that you do learn that as a leader too. If I actually am doing somebody else's job, I'm failing as a leader. I need a new person in that role. If the person I'm trying to do the job for, is not getting it done. That means I need a new person there because that's not my job. Yeah. 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 And so I think that as you, when I got to the CRO, at least for myself, that became so clear, you know, similar to prioritization, right? Even at EVP of sales at hundred, 200 million of revenue, you could not be exceptional at how you prioritize your time and how you went about things. Are you training, developing, trying to obsolete yourself from this item, or are you getting sort of in the weeds and you're trying to solve the problem yourself? And as CRO, it became really obvious. I couldn't do that. 
And to your thread on like you hire reps and then the company changes and do they change, uh, you know, uh, with you? Look, we have gone from essentially a one SKU company selling project management, so documents, drawings, to a platform with multiple products. And within that product, and we had like credit to the Procore R&D organization, like they had built a category creating product, financial management, right? So solving arguably the hardest problem in construction, which is, am I going to be on budget? Right. And will I have predictability? <laughs> and as CRO, um, it was on me to figure out like, okay, so how do I architect the business to deliver a great customer experience to achieve selling to different stakeholders, right? To different segments. Cause when you're vertical SaaS, I think you have less of a luxury to, you know, only serve one end of the market. And if we're only going to serve one, unless you're HubSpot, everyone picks enterprise, but we did all the way from SMB the you know very very large fortune 50 companies right doing global data center builds or corporate campuses whatever and so you know as cro i found that things got a lot harder and the fundamentals of like what makes a great executive i had far less room for error and necessity just became a beautiful teacher for me and so i figured out like hey what is my unique value proposition to marketing to business development to sales right what are the ways that I can make the culture exceptional? And what are the risk factors where I could ruin it, right? Leaving leaders in the role too wrong when it's not a fit for them. Um, and a lot of it became also, you know, how do I make sure that this stuff scales? And so like one mantra I had, you know, in that role was, look, we're going to go a lot farther together. But in order to go together, we have to have alignment. We have to work really well cross-functionally. Our systems and processes need to support the business strategy. Our training and development and the skills need to align to the business need and not where we are today, but where we're going. And so as CRO, you know, again, I know it may sound like, really, that's your like thing that you learn, but it was like, well, what are these things that make a C-suite executive really, really great? And how can I make sure I'm good at that? And vision and strategy and mission and purpose and cross-functional alignment and performance management. You know, I could. Yeah. yeah. But like you said, I think the two fundamental things that you hit on was how do, how do I prioritize and how do I manage my time most effectively for whatever those things might be that I have to get done? That becomes brutally important because there's only so much time in the day. Well, and I think that, you know, my, my mindset really crystallized by this role, which was like, leadership is the most important thing to whether I win, right? And so I've got to be spending my time hiring great leaders and making sure they can be wildly successful. And within leadership, I've come to believe that the highest calling of a leader is to obsolete yourself, is to work yes. yourself out of a job. Absolutely. And so as CR, well, you know, it's always the thing I've noticed about you, which I think is just such a beautiful McMahon thing. You're like, absolutely, of course. And you lay it out in such a way that's simple and digestible. I'm like, hey, man, it was hard for some of us. Uh, these were things that, you know, truthfully. I, like, no, but if you think about it, let's say you're a scaling company like you were and you have a first line managers and, and you know, next year you're going to have more first line managers and more second line managers and everybody wants to get promoted. Well, if you can't prove to me at the first line, that you were capable of recruiting people and developing them to essentially obsolete your job where they could take your place, then why would I put you into the second line job? Right? So your job as a leader is to train, recruit those people, train them and develop them to take your place. That's when you've succeeded. And I used to say, like, I want all my reps to make way more money than me. 
that means I maxed out my plan. Right. Yeah. I, I look, I even made it my own and said, look, my measure of success is that you've built far more leaders who are far more successful than I could ever be. And I think yes. that you're, you're pretty, you know, humble about this truthfully, but I think on a per capita basis, no one has created more CROs, right? And, you know, all the different ways that you've built discipline and inspiration for an industry. Um, and I would tell you that, I, you know, part of my own soul searching and journey in life is like, in addition to the business thriving because of that, like what personal thing in work could be more like rewarding and awesome than being like, yep, look, I can't take credit for those people's success, but they came in this environment and they are smarter, better than I'm ever going to be. And there's, you know, there's already numerous CROs and head of sales that came out of Procore. And so that's much more the like, well, what's your eulogy, not your resume. And like, yeah, you got to hit the numbers and do it repeatedly. But when you look back on life, what are you going to be like, wow, that was my joy on that joy of like building leaders who do great. I mean, that is special. And so, you know, long winded way to say, yeah, well, it may sound very cliche, but you know, it's when you turn from being um, a little selfish to selfless as a leader and you start to realize I can get everything I want if I help enough other people get what they want. So that sounds very like a cliche, but it's really like a mindset. It's a lens that you look at the world with and it's a lens that you look at people with. And if you help them succeed, you're going to be highly successful. Yeah. And, and you're playing the long game, right? And people know. You know, like this is one of those things I've been grateful for in our relationship and your mentorship of me is like, there's never been an ounce of, hey, what works for McMahon? It's truly like, how do I show up and show I really care for Dennis? And then we've had some hard conversations, right? There's not yeah, always that um, late at night, too. <laughs> late at night, early morning. I mean, you look, it's one of the ways you show up for people is you're there, you know, the, those moments of need. Um, but I say that because it's like, gosh, how much does that really matter? that people can tell when it's you're doing something for yourself. And the opposite is also true when they're like, you know what, this is a person who was truly had my back, gave me hard feedback when I didn't want to hear it, but he had the relationship with me. I knew he was right. Um, like that stuff then, you know, Chris said it from Snowflake, right? He's like, McMahon, I'd do anything for you. It's like, well, put me in that bucket too, because like you've showed up so sincerely and with so much care and so much regard for me. And so you know, I, I, sorry if I get too like excited on this particular yeah. point. Well, I don't want to just... get teary eyed here. So let's, let's switch. Let's, all right, all right. Now, when you were scaling, yeah, talk to us about the number one thing you had to learn and two things that come back into your mind right away. Like, okay, they've turned the jets on. We found product market fit. We're going, we're going to go from 10 million to 20, 20 to 40, 40 to 80. What do you, What's the biggest lesson you have to learn as a sales leader when the company's scaling so fast? I think that you've got to be really good at assessing whatever is the most important thing and then figuring out how to fix that problem. And let me offer a few examples. You know, we got to, you know, when I joined, we were 10 million in ARR at Procore. We never hired an outside sales rep. There was no, you know, training program, no territory planning, no forecast rhythm. And so like we had to build that. But then we got to like 50, 75 million in revenue. And it's like, hey, well, we've only got this one SKU. And we really only sell it to like mid-market general contractors, a specific kind of part of the building ecosystem. And so we had to figure out like, what's going to keep us growing for years to come? And all of a sudden, I had to trust that my leaders 
we're going to continue the training, the hiring of the reps. And I had to figure out with the executive leadership team, the board, all the wisdom of the field, like what's our next thing, right? Then we got, you know, certainly at CRO level, we got to a point and it was like, gosh, like we got to get really, really good at performance and promotions. And, you know, how do we like make sure that our annual compensation cycle ties to the performance and potential of the organization? And so these were all different problems that you kind of, I at least had to learn. It's like, okay, well, what is the thing of this thing? Like, is it the right thing for me to work on or should I be delegating this down or should I be eliminating uh, it? I like that. And so constantly trying to figure out like, okay, if we're not going to hit our number this quarter and we're not going to do it accurately, why? And how do I make sure that problem is taken care of? And then if we're not going to continue to scale and grow, and for me, I'm one of those, you might sense such a feely guys, we're not going to make an impact on the world and we're not going to help our customers. Like, we're not going to do those things. Why? And what do I have to do about that? And to the comment on prioritization, um, that became a really hard thing. Like, how do I assess the situation? How do I determine how to best prioritize it? How do I then best scope and action this problem? And for me, the earlier in my career, the more, you know, I was on the trigger of the problem myself, right? Yes. The more senior I got, the more I was able to look up and out over a long arc of time and be like, you know what? Like, if we're not helping product and sales enter this new market, like we're going to stop growing. You know what? If I can't keep my people motivated and happy, and yeah, we got a great training program, but I got to pay them well. Like how great is my process and procedure and how scalable is it? And so the thing that for me, you know, just became very, very uh, clear was like, I can get really, really good at fixing problems. And the first problem I got to fix is like, how do I figure out which problem to fix is the best way to fix it? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And what about, when you transitioned from a private company to a, and you and you went public, was there any new things that you had to pay attention to, or any lessons that you had to learn there, going, you know, private to public? You know, I think we had always been really passionate at Procore of you know building a forever company and being public worthy. Um, and building that discipline and rigor. So for us, and look, this is my own experience. And so maybe you talk to our employees and they're like, are you kidding me? Everything changed. You know, and I'm gonna <laughs> look, there was a lot of goodness that came from being a public company, right? Like yeah. our employees could realize liquidity. Um, we had more opportunity to do MA. Um, yeah. but truthfully, our sentiment was like, let's prepare and drill to this moment from when I joined in 2014, right? Because I think the best companies are public companies, and we wanted to be the best. And so for us, there wasn't a like, oh, you know, we did this. Um, now we stopped doing that. Now we do this. Like we had always thought like the outcome of being great at sales was an accurate forecast. And so, yes, when you're public, are the expectations even higher? Yeah. Does that $650 million, you know, dollars we raised, does money come with strings and expectations? Absolutely. <laughs> are the public markets more punishing? And, you know, when you have a, a you know, company of 400 people to board of eight folks, is that a smaller constituency base? Yeah, sure. All those things are true. But for us, it was just like, we just got to be that much better. Um, and it was less about like, now let's pivot entirely. And this is, I think, to my comment, you know, earlier in our conversation, like those fundamentals I learned, like never forget what it was like to be a rep. How do you hire exceptionally well? How do you take really great care of these people? And it's not the beanbags and the kombucha and the, you know, it's the training. 
It's the fact that they're part of something super successful. It's the fact that our technology actually does real things for the world that matter. And we're the ones who distribute and take that out. Like those things just got harder and more important, but they were still the things. Mm. And then if you look back to any things you regret or any, or, or the flip side, anything you're most proud of? You know, I've tried. So I can be a very hard person on myself, um, maybe to a fault, maybe not. I don't know. You know, still journeying there. So I'm not sure that I would say I regret because I've tried to really build a mindset for myself and the company of like, you're either winning or you're learning. So the only regret, failure, et cetera, is if you didn't learn from it and if you weren't a great human during the journey. So, you know, if I say like, what do I regret? You know, I regret making all the rookie mistakes, right? I regret thinking I needed to be the smartest person in the room. I, you know, regret, you know, not spending enough time on the balance of leadership in terms of on the business and in the business and, you know, in quarter and out quarter. And, you know, yeah, all those lessons are those ones. Those are pretty that, normal learning experiences. <laughs> yeah. And regrets. Yes. Yeah. You know, and then look, if there's anything I'm, I'm proud of, I mean, look, Procore matters to the world, right? I mean, the schools, hospital roads that we build, the challenges facing construction, um, such as you know global warming, like these are some of the most important challenges and solutions in our society. And so I'm really proud of what Procore does for the industry and what our customers do. But if you ask me, Dennis, be really honest, what are you most proud of? Man, I'm proud of the people who made their careers at Procore. I'm proud of the people who've gone on and are so much better and smarter than me. I'm proud of the houses that folks have been able to buy when they didn't come from means. Like, I'm proud of all the success that a successful company like Procore has created for its people. And, you know, truthfully, I'm honored to have gotten to be a part of it. Well, Dennis, it's been a hell of a ride for you. You've done an exceptional job. And once again, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this podcast. I appreciate that you do this podcast. I think I've been a big advocate of, you know, John, write a book. John, could you get more of this out there? I know you've said it a million times, but we still need to hear it. So I appreciate what you do, John. And, uh, you know, as a listener, I've gotten a lot of value. So I hope this one was a good one for, for yeah. the listeners. Thanks, Dennis. And thanks again to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.